We are uh, in John's Gospel, coming into the closing days of Jesus' ministry. Today we're going to talk about uh, the triumphal entry, and we're going to talk about just how triumphant it actually was. So I could ask you to please, uh, if you would stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's Word. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Let's listen intently together to the reading of God's word. This is from John chapter 12, verse 9 through 19. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palms and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it teaches us, how it challenges us, how it penetrates uh, even the dark areas of our heart, Lord. And we thank you for that, bringing those things to light so that we might seek your face and seek the promise that you have in your spirit, that you are sanctifying us and bringing us to be more like you. And that's what we want, Lord, more than anything else. So please, Lord, we pray that you would sanctify us, that you would show us the beauty of Christ that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This is one of the more jubilant scenes in the Gospels. It's a pretty exciting scene. It looks like... um, Jesus, the hero of the story, is about to win, right? Jerusalem is flooded with pilgrims. It's the Passover feast. Every male in Jerusalem is required to come to this feast. So we don't know exactly. There's the the, the estimates of how many people in Jerusalem at this time vary from 150,000 at the low estimate to a million at the top end. Some people claim that they, can, they have re- access to records of how many Passover lambs were sacrificed in those, that spread of years, and then they can calculate from that. A little dicey. One of the better experts thinks probably about 150,000 people are flooding into Jerusalem, and many of these people are from the countryside, Galilee, where the bulk of his healing ministry has taken place. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they present this um, event is almost like a hostile takeover of the Temple Mount by the Jesus movement, and it's one that the priests are almost powerless to stop, which is why they have to get Judas 
to turn him over. They can't approach him in the temple because he's too popular. He's too powerful. And yet, in a couple of days, the whole thing unravels. Man, how could that possibly be? How could it be these crowds are cheering for Jesus one minute? Hosanna, which means save us, Lord, we pray. And the next minute, crying out, crucify him. Well, as we unpack this, we're going to see that the crowds are hoping for something that Jesus isn't offering. But that's okay because he's offering them and he's offering us something far better. And so the big idea for this passage, the thesis, the main point is this. That we are free to let go of our little earthly kingdoms because Jesus is the cornerstone of a whole new creation. We are free to let go of our little earthly kingdoms because Jesus is the cornerstone of a whole new creation. And let's unpack that one little phrase at a time. Look at verse, first, letting go of our little kingdoms. Look at verse 9 through 11. And when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. If you remember last week, we, uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus had had a dinner for Jesus. Jesus uh, had earlier raised Lazarus from the dead, and word got into Jerusalem. Bethany is the town they were in. It's, only, it's less than two miles outside of Jerusalem. And so the word had gotten out that Jesus had come back to Bethany, even though the chief priests had put out orders that anybody that would see him or knew of his whereabouts was to, was to give him up, was to turn him in so that he could be arrested. Word came out that he was there, and crowds from Jerusalem, the crowds from the temple that had come for the Passover that had heard of this miracle go out, they flood out of Jerusalem and they go to Bethany to see this amazing miracle worker and to see a guy who's raised from the dead. Who wouldn't want to see that, right? I mean, seriously, if you knew there was a guy in Chula Vista that had been raised from the dead, you'd drive down there, wouldn't you? I would. Um, And in some ways, this is the same old story we see as far as the chief priests and their reaction to Jesus. They've been filtering everything through their filters of must-keep power. And so that filter has has prompted them to uh, see Jesus in a very different light because he threatens their power, or so they think. And so they decide because Jesus is threatening our power, therefore he must be a magician, therefore we must kill him. Uh, And then they rationalize after that a good and holy and pious-sounding reason why they should be able to do that because that's how it works, right? First you have the desire in your mind and then... Next, you make a plan to get the desire, and then after that, you've rationalized and justify why it's a holy and right and good thing to do. Well, the chief priests are no different. They're going to kill Jesus for political expediency, and now apparently they're going to kill Lazarus too. And, but that cues us, that tips us off to there's something new here. There's a new development too in their lust to remain in control of their little kingdom, their sin is starting to spin out of control. The first new development is that if you, if you read closely, uh, it says in verse 11, because account of him, many of the Jews 
were going away and believing in him. It's no longer the Galilean yokels. It's not the country people that are coming to Jesus. When he says going away to him, the word is going over. He's using it in the sense of they are defecting. This isn't uneducated people. These are ruling elites, upstanding, educated, elite Jerusalem families now that have started to go over to Jesus' side uh, because of the Lazarus miracle. John keeps pointing that out to us. Jesus has raised, called from the tomb and raised from the dead a man less than two miles out of town. And everybody has heard about it. There were hundreds of witnesses. And so now it's no longer the uneducated, working-class country people that are believing in Jesus. It's the educated elite, and that's a big, big problem. It's one thing to uh, discount Christianity when it's the uneducated masses. There was a friend of mine put a post up on Facebook. With the, they found some local pastor somewhere that made an inopportune statement saying something to the effect of, if the Bible said that two plus two equals five, I would believe it. I wouldn't doubt it. I would try and figure out why that was so. And then underneath it is a famous atheist scientist saying that's pure lunacy, making fun of the guy. I understand what he's saying. What he's trying to say is that supernatural revelation proven to be from a supernatural source is more reliable than our own reasoning. Uh, he made somewhat of a category error in the fact that he used mathematics uh, as an example of, rather than a metaphysical or rather than a religious example. And so it got confusing on people, and he made that inopportune statement. But they were poking fun at this guy. He's a local pastor somewhere. What you didn't see was that same atheist making fun of a statement from someone else, someone like, uh, someone like quantum physicist John Polkinghorne from Cambridge University who happens to be a believer. Or someone like philosopher Dallas Willard of UCLA who happens to be a believer. Or Dr. Francis Collins, uh, the director of the Human Genome Project who also happens to be a believer. It's a much different thing uh, when it's your peers that are starting to say, this makes sense and I believe it. And so when that happens, those people need to be shut down. And that's what they're doing to poor Lazarus. So the second new development is this, is to retain their control. They've now moved to where now they are having to suppress truth through sin, and that means that they have to kill Lazarus. They've threatened poor Lazarus, right? All he did was get raised from the dead. And now he's just been thrown into the midst of this political struggle, right? I imagine that that didn't, scare him a whole lot, right? <laughs> if he even knew about it, right? Uh, and the problem is though, that they're, gonna pl- they're planning on killing Jesus too. Otherwise, Jesus would just bring him back and, you know, we're going to do this all day or what, Pharisees? Uh, the problem was they were going to kill Jesus and they made plans to also kill Lazarus. They've made a, a transition here and I don't want you to miss it. They've moved away from killing a man whom they falsely accuse of breaking the law to deciding to kill a man in order to suppress the evidence that suggests they're wrong. That's a big move. And that's a scary move. Um, They've crossed the line from false justification 
to no justification. And the scary thing is, they don't even seem to realize that's what's happening. There's no meet in the meeting, the chief priests, they just decide to kill him. There's no discussion, there's no justification. It just happens. How does that happen? This teaches us, you know, a couple things important about sin. For these men, their excuse, of course, is they're they're looking out for the interest of Israel. They're looking to retain the safety and security of Israel against the Roman oppressors. But in reality, it's really their own power and their own control that they're looking to protect. They are looking to protect their own personal lives, their personal standing. They're looking to control their own lives, to keep control of their own little kingdoms. And this teaches us two things about sin. First is something that John Owens uh, the Puritan writer in a book called The Mortification of Sin, a principle that he lays out that says that sin will always reach for its greatest extent. In other words, it's not something that's, it, sin is not, you can't compartmentalize it. You can't play with it like a pet. You can't say, I'm going to have this little sin right here and I'm going to keep it in this box and everything's going to be cool. It just doesn't work like that. It tends to break out of that and expand into its furthest extent. And so that first seductive whisper of temptation is not just seeking for you to fantasize about it in your mind. It's seeking to break out and to reach its furthest extent, whatever that temptation may be. That's what James talks about in James 1 when he says that First, that you know, temptation comes out of our own desires and then we conceive about it, meaning we think about it for a while and then when we think about it for a while, eventually it's born and when it's born, then it produces death. It's the same principle that we see happening here, which is that the f- that first seductive whisper will grow eventually to its full form if it's left unchecked. And the second thing that we learn about sin is that the mechanism of that process, the way that that happens, is that there, with each sin, there is a hardening effect on the heart from the last sin, which prepares the next step into the abyss. And the bummer about it, the scary part about it is that that hardening of the heart can happen enough times to where you don't even realize it's going on anymore. And these guys have no idea that they've just condemned an innocent man to cover their own tracks and to keep themselves in power. That's scary. No one plans on being overrun by sin. Do you? No. Do you plan on being overrun with anger? Do you plan on being overrun with resentment? you plan on being overrun? Uh, fill in the blank? You don't. It happens incrementally, one little thing at a time, each one hardening and preparing the way for the next. And the scary part is we don't really even realize it's happening when it's happening. 
You know, last week we talked about devotion to Christ. When John Owens, in his book about sin, talks about uh, the mortification of sin, meaning that the, uh, the, the believer putting to death the works of the, of the flesh by the power of the Spirit, from Romans 8. There's two aspects of sanctification. There's vivification, where the Holy Spirit is bringing us to life. And then there's mortification, where by the power of that same Spirit, the believer is putting to death the evil works of the flesh. John Owen says that the time for that fight to happen is at that first whisper in the ear, at temptation. That's where the battle for the heart happens. Because if you wait, if you wait until you've fantasized about it for a couple of days, by that time, it's too powerful. It's grown too big and too powerful. And there's not any real head-to-head victory with sin when it reaches that stage. And so when we talked about devotion to Christ last week, this is where it's applied. And this is how we fight that with that first subtle whisper, that's where we remember the beauty of Jesus and that's where the battle happens. No one plans on being overrun by sin. It starts out by wanting a small thing, but it ends up taking you to places oftentimes that you would never ever imagine you would end up. It's never too late to turn around. The power of Christ is never uh, unable to heal But it's good to know these things. It's good to know what sin is. This should make us terrified of sin instead of toying with it. You know, we don't play with poisonous snakes. We don't swim with sharks. I hope you don't. You shouldn't. I mean, some guys do, right? They know what they're doing, but you know what I mean. We don't play with poisonous snakes. We shouldn't play with sin because it is a terrifying force that has more power than we can possibly imagine. So, summing, first point, letting go of our little kingdoms. When we defend our little kingdoms, insisting that our will be done more than that of Christ, it causes our sin to spin out of control. Second point, letting go of our earthly kingdoms. This is a little bit different of a thing. Look at verse 12. The next day a large crowd had come to the feast. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. If you read this careful, there's three crowds that are happening here. There's, there's the crowd that was at uh, the house in Bethany when Lazarus was raised from the dead. And that crowd goes into Jerusalem and begins to tell everybody, hundreds of people go into Jerusalem at the time of the feast, begin to tell everybody what they saw, that Jesus had just raised, the Jesus, the famous prophet had just raised a man from the dead, called him out of the tomb. There's a second crowd, a crowd that um, heard this and then left Jerusalem and went to Bethany to see him and to see Lazarus who was raised from the dead. This is the crowd that comes back with Jesus and then they're met also by Galilean pilgrims on the road as they enter into Jerusalem. And then there's a third crowd, the crowd inside Jerusalem who hears that Jesus is coming and they grab the palm branches and they come out to meet him. In other words, this is a big event. 
This is not Jesus coming in the side door of Jerusalem. This is Jesus coming in the front door with thousands of people cheering and shouting and making a big, big deal. swelling enthusiasm. And, and you remember in, verse, in, in chapter 6, the crowds, when he'd fed the 5,000, they wanted to make him king, but he wouldn't hid himself. But now, those same people coming into Jerusalem, he's accepting their homage. He's accepting their acclamation and their praise. And so they are probably going nuts because Jesus, the prophet, the hope of Israel, is finally ready to be king and he's coming in into Jerusalem as the king of Israel. You know, I'd read this as a kid, and I'd be like, yay, Jesus wins. Just so stoked. It was so exciting. And it seems great, and it is, except for those palm branches. And to understand what I mean by those palm branches, let me give you a mini history of the palm branch in Israel. First, in about 140 B.C., 140, 70 years prior to this taking place. Uh, Jerusalem was overrun by the Syrians and there was a Jewish general named Simon Maccabeus who drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem. And when he came in as a conquering king on his war horse, the crowds greeted him with, the, with palm fronds uh, as, as the conqueror rode into the city. And then not 10 years later, his son... Jerusalem was again overrun by the Greeks. His son, John Maccabees, in 133 BC, he drives out the Greeks, and so the people again, in this symbolic measure, while the king comes riding in after kicking out uh, the pagan forces, he comes riding into the city of Jerusalem on his war horse, and everybody comes out to meet him again with branches of palm trees. In fact, that, that symbolism was so strong that for the next 70 years, on all Jewish coins from 140 B.C. all the way to 70 B.C., there was an emblem of a palm branch as an emblem of national victory for Israel based on what the Maccabean kings had done. They kicked out Syria and they kicked out the Greeks. And so these crowds, they're shouting this song of praise, this song of, this song of ascent, this song that was given to Israel to, to, to proclaim their Davidic king as a symbol of the kingdom that God would be bringing, the eternal kingdom that he would be bringing to his people. And they're singing, Hosanna, save us, which means, save us, Lord, please save us, calling him the king of Israel. But save us from what? That's the big question. They're not wanting to be saved from sin and from death and from the slavery of sin, they're just wanting to be saved from the Romans, just like the Maccabean kings kicked out the Syrians and the Maccabean kings kicked out the Greeks 150 years before. This is nothing but straight-up nationalistic pride attaching itself to Jesus. They are sick being kicked around by the pagans. And so now they want to use Jesus to regain the power of their earthly kingdom. Some things never change. 
Wow. Look, you ever, you know, do you ever wonder how the crowds turn so fast? One minute, Hosanna, next minute, crucify him. One minute, when Jesus is seen as popular, when Jesus is seen as representing power, everybody wants in. They're all about it. Everybody, all these different factions and different elements and different powers want to attach themselves to the power. But the minute that they perceive weakness in Jesus, the minute they perceive strength in the high priests instead, it's like, whoa, maybe we're a little hasty about that. I'm going to be with the high priest now. Crucify him? Crucify him. That's right. Whatever we need to do. Everybody loves a winner. Everybody loves a winner. Now we can learn some valuable things from this. The first is, primarily is, that there is an inherent danger when the church becomes seen as popular or powerful or on the uprise. And that is because other powerful groups and entities and people with an agenda tend to latch themselves on to that. And when that happens, there's a cross-pollination. The ideals of the other powerful organizations tend to synchronize or syncretism is what we call it. Sync and and bleed into the culture and the ideas of the church and all of a sudden, slowly, before you know it, the church starts being less about the gospel, less about people that have been redeemed from sin and out of a deep sense of gratitude for what God has done for them, reaching out to help the poor and the disenfranchised and the outcast and the oppressed. It stops being about that and ends up being about all kinds of other things that happen slowly to the point where the gospel is watered down and the church ends up becoming and using its influence for things that are not Christianity. And we need to to think about that. We need to think about that as a church. Um, It's all too easy for us, for the line to get blurred, and for our desire, for our little kingdoms to become powerful again, Uh, for us to make just a couple of moves before that principle kicks in and all of a sudden we're all about, we're, we're flooding out of our churches and grabbing our palm trees and asking Jesus to restore our power on the earth. And even worse, we become conditioned to where that's all we expect or want from him. And then that becomes our message. And that is not the message of the church. I'm not endorsing or condemning any earthly power. What I'm saying is that those earthly powers 
have very different agendas. They're neutral. They can be good. They can be bad. They can be a great blessing or they cannot be a great blessing, but they are very different from the church and the mission of the church, and we need to keep those two missions separate in our minds so that we are able to focus on being the church and doing what the church does, which is proclaiming the gospel, seeking the lost, extending mercy to the poor, uh, and so that does not get watered down, diluted, corrupted, or tainted by any other thing. We have to keep that pure. We have to keep that pure. And so when we see the church heading down into a time of possible greater political power and influence, we must be extra, extra vigilant to not be shaped by the popularity, but to strive even harder to be shaped by the gospel, to strive even harder to seek the lost, to serve the poor, find the outcast because Jesus is not an earthly king and he does not have an earthly kingdom. Yes, we have to have good stewardship of our kingdoms here and to participate in that, but ultimately our hope is in something far greater than anything that this world has to offer us. Point one, we should let go of our little kingdoms. Point two, we should let go of our earthly kingdoms because point three... Jesus is the cornerstone of a whole new creation. Look at verse 12 through 15. And so they took branches of palm trees and went to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. We read in the call to worship today, we read Psalm 118. And in the gospel reading, we read Psalm 118. And that's because there are fantastic parallels between that psalm and what's played out in the last few months of Jesus' ministry. Psalm 118, for example, talks about God providing the gate of righteousness and Jesus said, I am the gate. At the, Jesus, at, the, at, the, at the Feast of Tabernacles that Jesus was just at, we learned about the history of that, that the high priests would take water from the pool of Siloam, the same pool that Jesus had the blind man wash his eyes off, which means the sent one. He would take that water and bring it to the temple and pour it over the altar as the water, the living water of salvation. And when they did that, they sang out this psalm, Hosanna, Hosanna. And at that moment is when Jesus cried out in the temple, I am the living water. Psalm 18 also says that God has made his light to shine on us. And Jesus cried out in the temple that he was the light of the world. But right in the middle of that psalm, Psalm 118 it calls Jesus the cornerstone. And in an age of modern architecture, we don't really know what a, and steel buildings, we don't really know what a cornerstone is. But there's one in this building on the southeast corner. If you go down to the southeast corner of First Presbyterian building, there's a big stone. It says 1912 on it when this building was built. And a cornerstone, it's architectural language for the very first stone of the foundation that's put in place 
and perfectly leveled so that it might then orient all the other stones of the structure laid down after it. And so Psalm 18 in this passage here is telling us that Jesus did not come to boost one nation over another. He didn't come to shore up any flagging political party. But he came to inaugurate a whole new order of creation. He's the start of something totally new. He's the start of something beautiful. They wanted a powerful earthly king to kick the Romans out, but Jesus is a very different kind of king, and he brings a very different kind of kingdom, an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, before I show you what's happening in this passage, the density of it, I want to remind you, we've talked about passages from the Old Testament quoted in the Gospels before. And I told you that one of my pastor friends calls them hyperlinks because in a biblically literate culture where most people had memorized huge sections of the Old Testament, when you mentioned one line from an Old Testament book, that would call to mind in the people's hearing it the entire passage. Uh, You know, books that we're familiar with or, or sayings that we're familiar with. If I said... Our Father who art in heaven. You guys could carry that whole thing out the rest of the way because we're familiar with that. We've memorized that part of Matthew's gospel. The Jews had memorized and did memorize huge chunks of the Old Testament. And so when a gospel writer quotes a small section of it, he's making a hyperlink directing back to the entire passage. And that is what is happening here. John has actually put together as many of the Old Testament writers do, a collage of Old Testament passages that are meant to call our minds to Old Testament prophecies, to Old Testament passages, to teach us and show us what's actually happening as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this donkey. And the first one is to teach us that Jesus is a very different kind of king. In John twelve fifteen, the second half of the, of the scripture that's cited there, it says, Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And that is a hyperlink back to Zechariah 9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. For how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty. The conquerors in those days, kings, were expected to ride in on a war horse, on a symbol of power. But Jesus, calling attention back to that prophecy in Zechariah 9, is riding in on the foal of a donkey in humility because he's really, as much as he's presenting himself as king of Israel, he's also presenting himself as the festal sacrifice that will be bound to the horns of the altar, which is the middle line in Psalm 118. He is coming not to conquer the Romans, not to conquer Jerusalem. He is coming in humility as the servant of the Lord, as our servant to conquer sin and death by way of the cross. He left his glorious kingdom behind and he came to be one of us 
to win for us the salvation that we could never win on our own. And so Jesus came in humility and in goodness and in beauty that would be fully displayed on the cross as he sacrificed himself for the flock of his people, as Psalm 118 says. The second thing, that Jesus brings a very different kind of kingdom. Look at John 12, 15, the first part of the verse where it says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. That's a whole other verse from a different passage that he's pasted together. It's a collage, two Old Testament passages back to back. And that is a hyperlink to Zephaniah chapter 3, which says this. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. Isn't that an astonishing picture of what has been happening with the ruling elite up to this point? Jerusalem and its ruling elite are corrupt. It goes on. For at that time, this time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From, the river, from beyond the river of Cush, which is Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. It's a hint that at Pentecost, God is going to undo what he did at the Tower of Babel and bring in all the nations, people of every race, of every color, of every nation, to come in and of one accord worship him together because the gospel is able to unite us. We have that in common. I don't care who you are, what your nationality is, what your race is. I don't care what your background is. If we both have Christ, we are brothers and sisters and that is a bond that is stronger than death and it's a bond and it's something, it's a vision that we as a church need to be fighting to display to the world in our churches. There's a primary goal that we should be fighting to create multiracial, multicultural churches to show the world the vision of the gospel and the power of the gospel to unite even the most diverse range of people. Our motto, our, our vision statement for our church is, is diversity in unity under the lordship of Christ for a reason. And it goes on. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. God is going to make that happen. 
He's made it happen when Jesus marched into Jerusalem to his death. That was the goal. That's what he accomplished for us. The Lord himself is in our midst. Can you imagine if they'd have been able to make that connection? It goes on, one last part. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. His salvation is not for the strong and for the mighty and for people who don't think they need it. It's for the lame and the outcast, and that's us. We are the people that he has saved. And he calls us to be strong in this and to not forget it. He calls us to fight for this vision and to not be frustrated or discouraged when we see the whole world warring against this ideal, warring against this beauty. But it's real easy to get frustrated, isn't it? It's real easy to be discouraged. We see these things, we see what it says, and then sometimes we say, it doesn't sound like that's happened. In a lot of ways, I can say, uh, you know, the lame have not been saved. The outcasts have not been gathered. I don't feel like my shame has been turned into praise and renown throughout the earth. Lest our hands grow weak and we become frustrated and tired, there's one more verse that's tied into this passage. There's one more verse that teaches us that Jesus brings an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's not all the way here yet. It's here in the power of the Spirit and we have been put in touch with the power of the age to come, but it's still coming in its fullness And it will be here soon. This is Revelation 7, chapter 9. It's a picture of, well, I'll just read it. It's self-explanatory. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, that's the righteousness of Christ that he has given us, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and all the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen, blessing and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Isn't it nice to know that what should have been, what should have been on that triumphant entrance day, but isn't, someday soon will be. Soon we will be celebrating the victory of Christ, not the victory of Christ or our victory in the world, but the victory of Christ over the world. The victory of Christ that has brought us into an entirely new world where we will worship him in beauty and in the splendor of holiness forever. Amen? Amen. We are free to let go of our little earthly kingdoms because Jesus is the cornerstone of a whole new creation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for 
your astonishing blessing to us in the gospel and what you've accomplished. We pray that you would help uh, us to keep in the forefront of our minds these huge, sweeping, grand themes of Scripture, this panoramic view of history and you as the Lord over it, bringing your salvation with surety and with power for those who believe in you and belong to you. And that is us, Lord. And so we thank you for these things. We praise you, Lord. As we approach your table where these truths are sealed to us and these signs and this mystery, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see how how much you've done for us, the cost it was to you to save us and that we would then, out of gratitude, seek to be servants and humble servants, waiting for that day when you come and save us, Lord, and bring us home forever. In Jesus' name, amen.